This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we help believers become thinkers and thinkers become believers. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. Today we are going to be talking about evolution and the problems with the scientific theory of macroevolution, Darwinian evolution. Kirk, we've got a couple of news items I'd like to start out with. One of them has to do with Kim Kardashian. And can you imagine what Kim Kardashian has in common with Carmen Electra? Uh, the shortest marriages on record. Ooh, good guess. <laughs> that was a good, guess. Good Am I guess. right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Kim Kardashian filed for divorce from Chris Humphreys after only 72 days. Oh, wow. <laughs> but she doesn't beat Carmen Electra's record, I guess, or I don't know what you'd call it, of eight days. Eight days. Eight days, yeah. Ooh. So because of the issue of marriage, and for people who listened last week, we briefly spoke about a couple of studies that show the benefits of marriage. I got this email from Summit Ministries, and they did a nice little thing about some of the benefits of marriage. This show, you know, we talk about the Christian worldview, what does the Christian religion do for you? How does it benefit you? How does it benefit society? And one of the main ways is by providing for strong marriages. This is from Summit Ministries, as I said, about how marriage is good for you and good for society. It says, societally, the 2008 report, Cohabitation, Marriage, and Child Well-Being, from the National Marriage Project, illustrates why marriage is a social good. Children raised outside an intact marriage are much more likely to suffer from psychiatric disorders, diseases, suicide attempts, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Another finding from Heritage Foundation's FamilyFacts.org shows teens raised in intact families are much less likely to have had sexual encounters in their teenage years reducing the spread of sexually transmitted diseases and the number of children born out of wedlock. In addition, whole nation's economic wealth is directly linked to the health of family and marriage in those countries, as defined by the traditional view of marriage. The healthier the institution of marriage is, the healthier the economies of those nations are. So that's some great news there. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, eight days, that's not really a marriage. That's more like a long date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. This 
report talks about some of the individual benefits also. It says individually marriage is replete with health benefits. Cohabitors are more likely to be depressed than those who are married. And I can imagine you would be depressed if you're breaking up after only a few days. Let's see, marriage even boosts health and increases lifespans to the point that for men, it compensates for the health risks of smoking. Wow. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Let's see, they continue, study after study shows kids grow up best while living with both biological parents committed to their marriage, protecting children and encouraging healthy marital procreation ought to be reason enough for governments to protect the traditional definition of marriage. Hmm. Then they say, aside from biblical citations, there are plenty of public reasons that compel societies and governments to protect the biblical view of marriage. The institution undergirds society and reinforces what true commitment is, which has large implications for legal contracts and governance, to name but two. If a man cannot be committed to his wife and children, and if marriage is merely reduced to his own personal happiness, how much validity can his commitment carry in the marketplace or job site? Without the type of selfless commitment monogamous marriage instills, we, how can a nation function, let alone prosper? Sure. You could kind of compare that to making any kind of a business contract. Where would we be as a country if people made business agreements all the time and then when they just don't feel like keeping them anymore, they just don't keep it? Yeah, exactly. A couple more statistics that they tack on to the end of this little bulletin. Some of these are really fascinating. Marriage makes sense financially. Here's a few statistics. The poverty rate for families without a father is 38.5%. For families without a mother, the rate is 23.7%. But for families with both a mother and a father, the poverty rate is 8.3%. Hmm. That's from familyfacts.org. Hmm. Then another financial statistic here, the mean household income for married couples with children, $91,000, is more than double that of single parents at 388 allowing married couples with children to bolster the economy by spending more on consumer goods. And that's from sustain the Sustainable Demographic Dividend. Then You'd think that Madison Avenue would be pushing marriage then after that kind of information. Exactly. If you want to improve the economy, start at the basics. Start supporting marriage and things could change or turn around. Right. I can, I can see a motto now, get married, spend more. There you go. There you go. Here's some for the health issue. It says 89% of married Americans reported being in excellent or good health. Only 84.5% of cohabitators reported the same, and 83% of divorced people reported being in excellent to good health. So health benefits reported for married people. Then it also says here 84% of married women say they are happy with their family life. In 2008, compared to 71% who are living with a partner and 50% of divorced or separated women. So happiness very much decreased unless you're married. Hmm. Then this final statistic is never married mothers are more than two times more likely to be the victims of domestic violence as mothers who are or have been married. So domestic violence down, happiness up if you are married. Hmm. Uh, that reminds me of a statistic I heard, Kirk, I don't know if you remember, 
what is the the biggest cause of child molestation? Do you know the source of child molestation, the biggest cause? Mm-hmm. No, that would, I don't think I know. Would, that would be live-in boyfriends. I was thinking along that yeah. those terms, but I didn't know how to say it. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of problems in this society, and maybe marriage can help with some of it, but there's something even more important, and that is the amount of Christianity in society. We need to increase it. That's what this show is about. We show you the benefits, not just individually, like we talked about marriage, so we have individual benefits, health benefits, financial benefits, but society as a whole is benefited by marriage, but also by Christianity as a whole. Kirk, I got this report from the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and they were commenting on the fact the press has been hammering some of the Christian Republicans, calling them theocrats and dominionists. Have you heard that? Yes, I have. And some people aren't sure what that means. Others do. It's code language, really. It's They're, they're calling these Christians people who are going to force Christianity on you to create a theocracy. Now, this is really fear-mongering. The, of the millions and millions of Christians in the United States, there must be probably only thousands or hundreds that have any desire whatsoever to create some kind of theocracy. It's a really bizarre edge of Christian thought, so no real spokespeople out there trying to push this, but still the media focuses on it. So are we trying to impose our views? Are we trying to create laws that are going to make Christianity dominant? Actually, it's not about imposing, it's proposing, and that's what this message from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview discusses. So they just go through a few of the things that we've mentioned in past shows about the benefits of Christianity for society and the historical look at how much it has benefited our way of life and made the United States and the Western civilization so prosperous. It's, well, also, it as, says, a, as a quick side note to that, you know, charge that these guys are trying to create a theocracy or something, that's impossible anyway, because our Constitution uh, would prevent that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Constitution sure it makes it clear that we, you know, there is to be no national religion right. imposed right. on but us. That, so they, they couldn't do that even if they wanted to. That's right. So it's all a silly charge, but there's nothing that the uh, leftist press love more than fear-mongering. Take a look at the environmental catastrophism that they keep reporting. So everything's going to fall apart unless you, you listen to them. On our side, what we do is tell you how things are going to get better if you listen to us. So <laughs> Colson's article says, remember Western liberal democracy, which gives the media freedom to bite the hand that feeds it, <laughs> arose from Christian roots. It was the monasteries of Christian Europe during the Middle Ages where we begin to find democracy for all, noble and peasant alike, not Greece, which was basically voting for the aristocracy. Capitalism, guided by Augustine's writings, took root in northern Italian states. In fact, the moral standards that Christianity engendered in Western culture were crucial for the development of democracy. People must be able to govern themselves and practice self-restraint before they can rule themselves by elected government. 
And so that's part of what it means to be self-governed. It's sure, talking all, about all you, you personally. Do, all you have to do is look at some of these past you know, nations that have used uh, secularism and atheism as the basis for their government, that, you know, like uh, communist China or communist Russia or North Korea or Iran or whatever, you know, these countries, they all, uh, there's no freedom to do anything there except what the government says. You know, it's, right. it's like you can't practice whatever religion you want here and you can't you know, the most of the journalists in this country, if they tried to say some of the things that they say here in some of these other countries, they'd be shot. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. But they seem determined to undermine their own position. Yeah. He goes on and says, Christianity made Western culture the most humane culture in history. Schools for all, charities, hospitals, the great universities, these are all fruits of Christian culture in the West. Right. The, the belief in the sanctity of life made Christians defenders of each individual's dignity. We believe men and women are sovereign creatures made in God's image. And because we bear his image... We were granted free will by God himself. We enjoy freedom as a right. It's in our nature. That is, by the way, why the church has always defended the right of private property, another hallmark of the West. Right. He says, so the next time a friend or an acquaintance blithely comments that Christians seek to impose their religion on others, gently, gently remind him or her that we seek no such thing. We will continue as our forebearers did, proposing that which benefits the common good and promotes human dignity. Western civilization has been shaped by this proposal, and every American who enjoys the blessings of freedom, believer and non-believer alike, benefits from it. And Kirk, you know, at the time of the Founding Fathers, there were Founding Fathers who were not what we would call Christians or Evangelicals. Yet they did find common ground with those Christians through what we call natural law. So even if they were atheistic, they understood that Christianity matched the real world. They understood natural law and what gave people their rights and what gave them their freedom. So they were able to work together to build this great country that we have. But now the atheists, the secular people have turned on the Christians. They've given up on natural law. They've given up on rationality and reason and instead are seeking pleasure and narcissism and turned on the Christians who gave them this freedom and prosperity. Yeah, what a shame. We all we all lose when that happens. And well, even, you, even the atheists and the people that are pursuing this kind of stuff lose. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we are pursuing the topic of evolution. And last week, we looked at some of the issues with evolution, some of the problems, things like the cyclical change of evolution, the limits of genetic information. And today, what we want to do is look at a few more of the problems. And we'll start out with the non-viability of transitional forms. And Kirk, I believe this is something that you've written about in your book. There's this situation where if you've got one type of an animal that's going to change into another type of an animal, the transition in between, that's the difficult part. Right. Most of the transitional forms would never survive this in-between stage. So changing from one type of complex structure to another 
means that features that once did a good job and are slowly changing into something else now don't work. So you can imagine, say, the evolution story of scales changing into feathers. Well, the problem is that scales do a very good job at what they do. And feathers do a very good job at what they do. The problem is when you're half scale, half feather, <laughs> you don't do a very good job of either one. I wouldn't so, think so. Yeah. And it's the same thing with different types of hearts and different respiratory systems and different skeletal systems. The changing in between the different types makes for a bad design and failure of the organism. So things just don't do that. So these completely different organs, completely different chemical pathways would simply cease to function while they're in transition. And so uh, this is what we call the non-viability of transitional forms, and it's a very strong evidence against evolution. Sure, if you want to state it in a simple way, try taking one of the tires off of your car or take the distributor out or pull one of the wires off and see how well your car works. Yeah, exactly. So you know, try and try and turn your car into a bicycle and see <laughs> if in when it's in its in-between stage if it works. Right. You know, when mechanics work on your car to fix something, when they're in the middle of fixing it and they have the car taken apart, it doesn't work very well at that point. It only works after they put everything together where it belongs in the right place and, you know, then everything works. Absolutely. Well, the next thing we want to look at is the idea of common ancestry. Darwinists and evolutionists claim that all life comes from a common ancestor. And one of the things they use to promote this is the they'll say, in fact, I believe it was um, Richard Dawkins who said that this is, he was asked, what's the strongest evidence for evolution in his mind? And he said the absolute strongest evidence is the fact that DNA, the fact that all organisms have DNA in them, is proof of common ancestry. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Dawkins, but um, that's a really weak argument, and it fails. You know, it, so, so what about that? It, is the fact that living things are all based on DNA or share other kinds of biochemical similarities, is that proof that we are all related? Of course not. Again, if you use the example of cars, just because all cars in the world are made with four tires in the same basic design doesn't mean they all came from the same factory. <laughs> That's exactly right. It is, it, it is equal proof that they were designed by the same designer or, or live in the same biosphere, for that matter. Can you imagine if, let's say, there was a murder in your town, okay, and you read in the newspaper that a dead person and there was a gun and the police chief says there was no murder it was suicide and the reporter asked the police chief what proof do you have that it was suicide and he says well there was a gun found in the in the room what's that got to do with it couldn't the gun also be there if it had been a murder sure is is the mere presence of a gun proof that it was suicide nope not at all so there are two possible explanations for that piece of evidence. The, the mere presence of the gun in the room could be murder or could be suicide. Same with this DNA. It could be that it's a common ancestor or it could be a common designer. 
But, so, but that also makes a false assumption about God. It makes a false assumption that if God created everything, that he would make everything totally different and use a different design for everything. Yes, Now, great th- that's a ridiculous assumption to begin with. Sure it is. Sure it is. In fact, can you imagine if he did do that? What oh would gosh. happen to the food chains on Earth? How could one organism survive by feeding on a lower life form if that life form was totally different? Let's say that all of the amino acids were left-handed instead of right-handed. The organism wouldn't be able to digest anything. They would starve to death. Right. So the organisms have to be chemically similar or there is no ecosystem. There's no interchange. There's no life chain. Right. So you couldn't have a food chain if we were all different. So we actually expect to see that organisms have similar biochemistry pathways and all have DNA. And why isn't it just as good an assumption to say that the fact that all living things have DNA means that God came up with a great design to begin with and he used that for all living things? That's right. I mean, DNA is like the, the perfect method of storing information. So if all organisms need information in them, then why not use DNA to store that information? Sure. So and one of the things that is counter to this. Now, let's use their argument and flip it around and see that actually their argument fails for another reason. If there was common ancestry, then we ought to see proteins that are transitional, okay? So as organisms grew up from the microbe stage and went through the different stages of life and developed into the higher life forms, we should see that proteins change slightly over time and begin to gain new types of functions and they're somewhat similar but a little bit different and that gives them a little bit different function, et cetera, et cetera. But instead what we see is that different kinds of animals tend to have completely different kinds of proteins. They're not at all the same, which means they come from completely different sets of amino acids and therefore completely different strings or genes on the DNA itself. So this actually turns out to be a very strong evidence against evolution instead of for evolution. Sure. You know, and it seems to me that if random chance was really behind the way things are in the way that they quote-unquote evolved, it seems to me that that all living creatures from fish all the way up to human beings would be a lot more similar than they are. There wouldn't be the incredible uh, differences in complexity and everything that we see in the world around us. That's right. There'd be a more graduated span of life. Now, you do see graduation within kinds. Right. So, for instance, different types of dogs. Do we see a graduation of different types of dogs? Sure. Yes, we do. Do you see different types of butterflies? Right. You see graduations in different types of butterflies. There's something like 10,000 different butterfly species. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So, but they're essentially all the same. They're certainly the same kind of organism. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and this is completely unexpected according to the Darwinian view. You should see a gradual change from one kind of animal into another kind, and you just don't see that. You see instead just what the Bible describes as specific kinds or types of animals. Now, you'll have diversity amongst them, 
all different kinds of seals, all different kinds of dogs, all different kinds of cat animals, but big differences between those groupings. Even Charles Darwin himself said that he was mystified by the fact that there weren't that the fossil record wasn't loaded with transitional forms all over the place. He said, according to my theory, there should be transitional forms everywhere, but there aren't. Yeah, that's right. So and he was hopeful that more transitional forms would be found in the future, but in 150 years, that hasn't come about. We've, we've actually got fewer transitional forms now because even some of the animals that they thought were transitional before, they've you know gotten more information and found out that they really weren't transitional forms after all. So we have fewer transitional forms now than in Darwin's day. Absolutely. In fact, here's the quote from Charles Darwin. He said, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? That's exactly the quote I was thinking of. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Yep. So there is this issue of why isn't there this gradual progression of life? And if people think, well, the reason there's not is because certain portions of it have become extinct and, and the, the gaps are caused by the extinction of certain types of animals, well, then how come it's not in the fossil record? Here's another quote by Stephen Jay Gould who says the history of most fossil species includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism, okay, or neo-Darwinianism. Mm -hmm. Number one is stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they disappear. Mm -hmm. More Morphological change, or and that just means shape, morphological change, is usually limited and directionless. Yep. That's a key point, directionless. Yep. Then he says, he continues, number two, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Mm -hmm. That's true. And Stephen Jay Gould, I think most people recognize his name. He was a paleontologist who developed the idea of punctuated equilibrium yep. because the fossil record simply doesn't support a gradualism like neo-Darwinianism. He actually admitted that there weren't transitional forms in the fossil record, and that was his, the punctuated equilibrium, which basically says that animals changed overnight, was his way of trying to get around that problem. Absolutely. And if, they, if you look through the fossil record, the biggest difference, the biggest change happens at something they call the Cambrian Explosion. So this happened 520 to 530 million years ago, according to the evolutionist aging of the Earth. And all of a sudden, in this 10 million year time gap, you have every basic body form created. From, that just shows up out of nowhere. That's right. That's right. All of a sudden, and, and just a vast array of complex life right at the lowest geologic strata with no ancestors, and it just goes incredibly bad for evolution. This It really makes the dogma of evolution 
show itself for what it is, nothing but dogma. And even Darwinists, if you question them about this, about the Cambrian explosion, even they will admit that they are mystified by that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they early on they thought, and of course the Cambrian explosion, Darwin knew about this, but, you know, they thought, well, you know, further examples of Cambrian layers will show us the transitions, and turns out that's not true. Yep. You can look at Canada's Burgess Shale. There's a huge Cambrian field in China that's gotten a lot of research done at it, and they've shown the sudden onset of all life forms. They thought there was the argument, well, maybe the lower life forms are just too soft or too small to be preserved. And it turns out that that's not true. In this, the Cambrian explosion, the Cambrian layer in China, they have found little amoeba, or not amoeba, uh, embryos, tiny, tiny microscopic embryos, invertebrate embryos that have been, that are soft and very, very tiny. And yet they've been perfectly preserved yes, uh, and in the found, layers below the Cambrian. So they found a number of, of soft type creatures like worms yeah. and um, other yeah, things so that, you know, even though the creature itself has not been preserved, a mold of it in the mud has been preserved. Yeah, that's right. So the fossil record, this Cambrian explosion is an is a incredibly strong evidence against evolution. You know, it's just a fact that all kinds of complex multicellular life suddenly sprang into existence without any trace of less complex predecessors. Now, you do have below that Cambrian level, you do have some single-celled forms, but not one basic body type is supported by any kind of ancestral line yep. between single-celled life and the organisms in the Cambrian explosion. And there's not any basic types that are related to one another. They all start out different from each other and all start out simultaneously. So, in fact, if you think about the supposed tree of life that Darwin talked about, where you have an organism beginning the you know, great common ancestor, first common ancestor, and then different life forms branching off slowly and kind of looking like a, a tree limbs. Right. In reality, there's... Scientists who have been digging in the Cambrian levels say that it's the opposite, that it actually starts out broad-based and grows to a single point, hmm. you know, with loss of many, many uh, thousands of species that have become extinct. More like an upside-down tree. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, an <laughs> upside-down tree. So people can think of, uh, you know, some examples. Let's specifically mention something like clams, okay? Clams are a prominent resident in the Cambrian explosion. The lowest occurrence of clams, it's abrupt, sudden appearance, and they're found at every level up until today, just as Stephen Jay Gould said, stasis. Do they vary? Yes, there's a lot of variety amongst clams, but they're still clams. Right. So this variety doesn't really mean anything as far as ancestry. I mean, there are no half clams, let's put it that way. Right. And, you know, a half of a shell would still be good enough to be buried and be detected in the fossil record, but simply not there. You mean we don't have any half clams, half snails? <laughs> nope, just <laughs> no half-baked clams. Could you imagine what a seafood buffet that would be if we had all these these things that were half one thing and half another, like half a flounder and half a shrimp? And Ooh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Maybe it would. <laughs> yeah, make some good sandwiches, right? Uh, might. Well, think of, you know, think of other 
animals, other organisms. How about turtles, right? Turtles are easily preserved as fossils, yep. but there aren't any transitional forms that are found. There's no feature in other reptiles that could potentially become a turtle shell. You just have the sudden appearance of turtles. Yeah, and we uh, still have them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Snakes is another sudden appearance in the fossil record, right? You know, yep. why aren't there transitional forms? There's not. Here's a quote from paleontologist Michael Benton, who says, Snakes are believed to have arisen from lizard ancestors, but the nature of those ancestors is a mystery. Like really? so much about evolution is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, you know, it's a mystery, Charlie Brown. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. <laughs> and we're talking about the problems with evolution. Now, Kirk, I want to make a general point for people who are listening to us. You know, when you try to determine when of two competing arguments or two competing situations, which one is true, okay? So what's the truth about a certain situation? The way you do that is by examining the total situation and trying to see what makes sense, right? What fits together? What is the true state of affairs? Mm-hmm. So with intelligent design, everything fits together. Everything, there are no, you know, hard to figure out mysteries, things like that. But with evolution, this is all you have is all these very bizarre mysteries. Why is it this way? Why is it that way? How come this and nothing seems to make sense? There are missing links all over the place. <laughs> yeah, and all kinds of missing explanations, still. It's yep. not just the links, it's the missing explanations. Yep. Why are things the way they are? Evolution just doesn't seem to be able to explain them. And yet, many secularists have this incredible amount of faith, even more faith than I think I probably have in Christianity, they have this faith that they're going to find all these answers someday to all of this, this, and it's all going to fit together. That's right. It's a real blind faith. It's just total allegiance for many times for personal reasons, as evolutionists will frequently admit. Right. And And for more than 150 years, they've been, you know, holding on to this faith that, well, we'll find answers to this. We'll find answers. And they're still waiting. That's right. Well, you know, Kirk, I think if there were transitional forms, if they could be found, then there would be a lot less controversy over evolution. Sure. I, you know, I mean, a lot more people would believe in evolution if you could find these transitional forms. But the truth is that there is no such evidence. Evolution just really suffers from a lack of supporting data. You know, you can't, it's just impossible to determine the origin of any basic body type. So without being able to explain anything, what is the point in believing in macroevolution? It's like believing in magic. Well, it's worse than believing in magic because you don't even have a magician present. Really? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. The data shows exactly what they should show if instead intelligent design were true. If there's an intelligent designer who is kickstarting things and providing the information all at once in the DNA, that's what we see. So when we go and look at the data, when we go and look at the fossil record, that's exactly what we see. We see the results of intelligent design. 
The transitional missing links are just imaginary. And, and they're really necessary only to support macroevolution because macroevolution itself is imaginary. Yeah. All right, let's uh, jump into another evidence against evolution. This one's got a big name. This one is called antagonistic pleiotrophy. Ooh, wow. Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah. So what's that about? All right. There's a new insight that's been shown that when beneficial changes in a nucleotide sequence occur, okay, so and that is just a sequence of DNA, portion of the coding inside a person that or an organism, that there's a, a loss of pre-existing activities in the original biochemical system, okay? So if there's even what looks like a beneficial change, in reality, there is some kind of loss of something pre-existing, some kind of loss of some biochemical system that gives this beneficial change. So they call this a knockout, okay? So what it means is that if part of the DNA is knocked out, then the organism can survive in a certain situation. I think last week, remember, we talked briefly about this because you asked about could bacteria survive in poison, right? Remember that? Right, right. And it's the example of the bacterial survival in antibiotics. And the what happens is the bacteria actually loses a biochemical system, the ability to to digest the antibiotic. Now that turns out to actually save the bacteria because when it digests the antibiotic, it creates a toxin that actually kills the bacteria and that's how the antibiotic works. Mm -hmm. So there's, it, it looks as if organisms are designed in such a way that, well, I guess what we should say is they're modular, okay? So there are these modular systems within organisms and if you knock out existing biochemical machinery, it'll change some either enzyme or some regulatory or transport system. And that can confer a temporary survival benefit. So let's see, as an example, it would be, let's say you have a car that has a detachable roof. Okay. okay. So Kirk, if you take that detachable roof off of your car... Have uh, have you made it better? If you want to drive around in the sunlight, maybe. Exactly. That's right. If you want it to drive in the sunlight, if you want a convertible, it's better. But have you gained anything? No, you've lost the roof. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then when it exactly. starts to rain, you got a problem. <laughs> that's right. Or another example, let's say, Kirk, you're in a hot air balloon and you're you're a little bit too far from the airport and you start to descend. You're running out of hot air. Right. But you have on board a heavy radio system. Okay. What do you think you could do? Well, you could throw the radio out and try to lighten the load a little bit. Exactly. So you make it, you survive, right? The balloon rises again and you make it to your destination. But have you improved things or have you lost something? No, you've lost your ability to communicate with the ground. <laughs> That's exactly right. So it's these kinds of things that we see in the so-called beneficial changes. And there are very, very few beneficial changes that can be documented. But when they're carefully examined, we do see this. So there's this 
trade-off of existing biochemical systems in order for the organism to survive in a new environment, and it's called antagonistic pleiotrophy. Okay. So, so do you see how this seems to be designed? Because this change doesn't completely destroy the organism. The organism is designed, the genetic information is designed in a modular form. So these little modules can be broken off and the organism will still survive. It so can, this is an incredible evidence against evolution and evidence for the intelligent design that organisms are actually designed to allow for mutations. It's as if the designer knew that there would be mutations. So in addition to doing things like giving backup systems in organisms, he also made things so they could be knocked out and still the organism would survive. In fact, in certain situations, that it would actually give a benefit to that organism. Really, what you're talking about is limited adaptability. Yeah, that's right. It's a kind of a destructive adaptability. Right. So um, you can imagine, let's look at flightless birds. There are certain islands or, or even a better example is a flightless insect. There are beetles that have lost the ability to, to fly that live on an island that's very windy. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Is When they're on this island that's very windy, is it better if they don't fly? Yes. It's a lot it better is. if they don't fly because they get blown into the ocean and drown. Sure. So they survive much better through the loss of their ability to fly. But also, uh, and you've talked about this before, is the fact that uh, using the beetle example, if you were to take some of these beetles and transfer them to the mainland where there's little or no wind, their tendency would be to revert back to what they were. That's right. They, would, the they would revert type. back to their wings again and fly again. Yes, that's exactly right. So it's, it's not like um when they knock out these systems as you say they don't don't knock them out permanently they're knocked out temporarily and they can revert back that's right and since there is no additional complexity added to the existing system then it this does not explain the origin of those very same complex interconnected systems so all of these examples of so-called benefits of mutation actually turn out that they prove intelligent design instead of the other way around. Yeah. Well, we've got a few minutes left, Kirk. Why don't we jump into the topic of the tree of life? The tree of life is one of the things that you see in textbooks all the time. It's supposed to be a way of showing this common ancestry and that Darwinism is true. All of life came from a single ancestor. And the Darwinists say this is true because they can draw this tree-like structure. See, they can, they can line up all the organisms in the world and draw these lines between them and show how these organisms are all related to a common ancestor. So the problem is that it just ain't so. It just doesn't work. <laughs> Most attempts to build these trees are full of inconsistencies. So if you do it, you know, you, uh, you show the relatedness of creatures by the way that their jaws change, then you forget about the fact that their backbone and pelvis are changing in different ways. Or if you go with the rib cage, then you find out that the, the jaw and the skull are, are changing in a different way. And so, you know, there's a real fight as to how these trees of life ought to be drawn. Now you add the ability to scan DNA 
and to look at the actual DNA and the genes and the chemical pathways in different organisms. And some scientists are actually abandoning the effort to create a tree of life. There was a 2009 article in New Scientist magazine called Why Darwin Was Wrong About the Tree of Life. And it just goes in, in depth into this problem that the, if you create a tree of life by the shape of species, the, the shape of an organism, the morphology, um, then if you use the protein and the DNA sequences instead, it contradicts all those old trees. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was even a study of DNA segments that found that the data was 99% off from the morphological tree, from the tree that was designed by shape. Hmm. So this uh, New Scientist article said that the tree of life, quote, lies in tatters, torn hmm. to pieces by an onslaught of negative evidence. Different genes told contradictory evolutionary stories. <laughs> there was a 2000 Nature article that said, congruence between molecular phylogenies is as elusive as it is in morphology and as it is between molecules and morphology. So there's just no making these these trees of life work out. In there, other words, just because two species of animals may look similar on the outside doesn't mean that they're related to one another. Yeah, they're not the same on the inside. If you look at the DNA or you look at the chemistry or you look at the genes, they're not the same. The me- molecular reality is totally different. That's right. There was a 2007 Nature article that showed the same holds true for plants. It said, quote, only rarely have phylogenetic studies or morphology and DNA data agreed in plant studies, even in well-studied groups. So experts just can find no objective basic basis to, uh, to link one kind of creature to another. Another evolutionary mystery. <laughs> and we will continue with our discussion of evolution next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.